Shelley Schlender for How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Up next is an extended version of the talk by Hunter Lovins on regenerative economics. It's the complete talk that she gave in the fall of 2015 in Boulder. to the community house built in 1918. We're also very pleased to welcome Hunter Lovins to kick off the Future of the Humanities series, which is presented in partnership with the Highland City Club. Before we get started, I'd like to take a moment to thank those of you who are Chautauqua members and donors. Your financial contributions help support our preservation efforts and make events like tonight's possible. A few housekeeping notes. If you're looking for the restroom, it's located right through that door and down the stairs. Water is also available in the back of the room. Some upcoming events. The next forum in our Humanities series will be the Watson Scholars on November 18th. We also have our first of two Veteran Speak events on November 4th with Angie Ricketts, No Man's War. And you can find out more about our up upcoming events located in the brochures which are on your seats and also available at the back of the room. You can also find out more about our ticketing, lodging, dining, and ways you can support Chautauqua by going online to Chautauqua.com. Thank you for your time, and now I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker. Hunter Lovins is president of the Natural Capitalism Solutions and professor of, professor of sustainable business management at Bard College. A master at Ditao Academy in Shanghai, she consults for industries and governments worldwide and has briefed heads of states as well as the United Nations. Lovins is the author of 15 books, has won dozens of awards, including the European Sustainability Pioneer Award and the Right Livelihood Award. Time Magazine recognizes her as the Millennium Hero for the Planet, and Newsweek called her a green business icon. Please join me in welcoming Hunter Lovins. Thanks so much. It is truly an honor to be here in my home community. I tend to do things like this the world around. And the opportunity to give a speech and then go home. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Anthropocene. When we were all born, we lived in a different geological era. The geologists who uh, name these eras have decided that we, humans, are now the dominant geological force on the planet. That's fairly awesome. We're changing the chemistry of the atmosphere, we're changing the chemistry of the oceans, and we are the biggest land-moving phenomenon now on the planet, although folk who've been through an earthquake might dispute that. Great oceanographer Sylvia Earle says what we do in the next 10 years matters more than what humanity does in the next 10,000 because we are up against it. And this lecture series of the, the future of humanity, NASA funded a study that came out last spring called HANDY. I mean, they clearly picked the acronym and then named the thing. It's the Human and Nature Dynamical Study. It's a mouthful. They sought to understand if collapse is inevitable, and by this they meant total civilizational 
collapse. And they found that these sorts of collapses are actually not uncommon throughout human history. When they happen, they tend to last for a long time, hundreds, perhaps thousands of years. They happen in general because of two reasons. You overrun your resource base or have high levels of inequality. Hello. <laughs> We're clearly overrunning our resource base. This is the science from Stockholm Resilience Institute, Dr. Johan Rockström and team. And from Bill Rees, one of the fathers of ecological economics, we're fishing out the oceans. We are taking the nutrients out of agricultural land. We're dropping groundwater tables. We're, we're mining. We're overrunning our resource base. And the consequences are becoming increasingly grim. Dr. Tom Lovejoy at the Smithsonian Institution, Global Biodiversity Outlook 3, we're losing life now on the planet at a faster rate than when the dinosaurs went extinct. Coral reefs. Sorry, scuba divers, business as usual, perhaps as early as 2030, there won't be living coral reefs on planet Earth. The Amazon is drying up and burning due to climate change. And the oceans are becoming acidic. Here's our choice, and it's a fairly stark one. If we get serious about climate protection, we can have the future on the far side of the screen. If we do business as usual, we are going to get hell on Earth, which has started to exercise the uh, religious leaders. Bishop Desmond Tutu, climate change is now the human rights issue of our time. It's killing people, it's spreading disease. The Holy Father recently came out with his encyclical, Laudato Si, in which he said climate change is a scientific reality, but more than that, it is a moral and religious imperative. And for those of you who are interested, on your chairs is a short blurb on a session that natural capitalism is running with a number of faith leaders, business leaders, political leaders. Governor Bill Ritter will be with us on Monday night, November 23rd, to begin to bring together these, if you will, power nodes in society to take the encyclical from just being a magnificent document, and putting it into action. This is also part of the run-up to the Denver Sustainability Summit, in which the city of Denver is asking people to make commitments of what it is they are going to do, their company is going to do, their organization is going to do, to act on these issues. The religious leaders are concerned because climate change hurts the poor first, worst, And because we live in an economy now that is flowing money as fast as it can to a tiny handful of people, this is actually an outdated number. It's this year's number, but by next year, 80 people will have as much money as all the rest of humanity. That's according to Credit Suisse, who works with Oxfam to turn out these reports. And despite this enormous wealth, 
Dr. Kate Raworth at Oxford is showing that we are failing to meet the basic human minimums needed to ensure human dignity and a quality of life. Kate takes the planetary boundaries that Rockstrom set forth and then these human minimums and says where we want to be is this safe and just operating space. She calls it the donut and has a new book coming out on donut economics. Because of climate change, 20 million people were displaced in Pakistan in 2010. This is a country with nuclear-tipped missiles. The north of Africa, millions of people on the move because of failed states, again because of climate change, intersecting with ethnic and religious conflicts. And they're not staying put. They're headed for Europe. They're in Europe. Piece on NPR the other day, 5,000 people a day arriving on Lesbos, the Greek island. Just imagine. Imagine 5,000 more people arriving here in Boulder every day. No end in sight. And business as usual, we're going to need more food, more energy, more water. If this is beginning to sound a bit like that old book, Limits to Growth, that book was wrong, yeah? Well, maybe. The dotted lines are the original collapse projection. The solid line is the data from 1972 when the book was written and the word sustainability first entered the English language until 2000. We're right on track, to the point that some people are saying it's too late. Don't do this because it will put you in a very bad mood, but you can Google near-term human extinction. There are websites saying humans go extinct by 2050. I tracked into this when I was working on uh, a project I'm doing with the Club of Rome on can we avoid collapse? And it put me in an extremely bad mood. <laughs> I was going the next day to speak to the open working group at the United Nations that was putting together the sustainable development goals. This was the last meeting they had before they set the goals. And a group of us were asked to come and talk to them. And Dr. Kevin Noonan, who works with Rockstrom, was there. And I said, Kevin, have you seen this stuff? He said, yeah. I said, is it true? He said, we all know the situation is dire. But he said, no, on balance, I don't think we go extinct by 2050. And he said, the work that you're doing, the work that we're all trying to do, is to create an option space for life. He said, I think we can do it. Do you? And I said, hell yeah. How did we get into this mess? Nelson Mandela said, poverty is not an accident. We made it. The good news is we can unmake it. The economic situation we're in was created intentionally 
by 36 men who met at a hotel outside Montreux, Switzerland, the Mont Pelerin Hotel, in 1947. Now, this is directly after World War II. Europe's a mess. So Ludwig von Mies was scared to death of National Socialism, which had just wrecked Europe. Frederick Hayek was scared to death of the rise in the East of Soviet collectivism. Milton Friedman believed in the primacy of the individual. They and 33 of their closest friends gathered to build the intellectual architecture that became neoliberalism. In this country, we call it neoconservatism. I'm not quite sure how those can be the same, but take it as given. Once they had argued, they argued for 10 days, and once they had set on it, they started inviting in storytellers, on Rand, who wrote the book Atlas Shrugged. And they beavered away, they created the Chicago School of Economics, they created the Economics Nobel to legitimize what they were doing. They became advisors to heads of state the world around. Three of them became heads of state. They garnered eight of the Economics Nobels. And in 1980, this is Hayek with Reagan, in 1980 when Reagan was elected in this country and Thatcher was elected in the UK, they won. They became the dominant economic narrative on the planet. To the point where it is now inconceivable to most of us that there is an alternative. And the folk just down the hill are arguing from this narrative that austerity is the answer. Government is bad. Markets are perfect, and the individual is the only legitimate economic actor. The only trouble with this narrative is it doesn't work terribly well. Austerity reduces debt. No, it actually increases unemployment, inequality, and ultimately debt. Low interest rates, people will invest in the economy. Not necessarily. Low taxes, it increases inequality. Markets will create competition. They tend to drive more towards monopolies. You go through item by item by item. And there was some math, you may remember, Rogoff, Rogoff and Reinhardt, a couple of academics who said if a country's debt exceeds a certain amount of its GDP, it drives to impoverishment in the economy. And a grad student, and this was being taught because it's the accepted mathematics of austerity, grad student took the Excel spreadsheets and tried to replicate them and came to his professor and said, I'm sorry, I can't make this add up. <coughs> professor said, well, you're obviously doing something wrong, looked at the student's numbers and said, I can't make it add up either. And Paul Krugman had a nice piece in the New York Times saying, Reinhardt and Rogoff cooked their numbers. This stuff just doesn't hold up. What does happen is inequality. Remember one of those two things that the Handy study said we cannot have if we wish to avoid collapse. Up until 1980, we all grew together. After 1980, we grew apart 
to the point where now this 0.01% of the world has, has it all. Emmanuel Says and Thomas Piketty pointed out that we are now back at the levels of inequality that obtained before the Great Depression and argues it is causative of collapse. Now, as an author, this is somewhat insulting. This is 700 pages of arcane economic statistics translated from the French, and it was for weeks running the number one bestseller on Amazon. This has got to be the least read bestseller in history. <laughs> but if you want to know in excruciating detail what causes inequality, it's there. What Piketty says, though, is, well, we need a global wealth tax. Hands up those of you who believe that has a chance in hell. Yeah, me either. So is it possible to get out of this mess? Yeah, there are no silver bullets, but we got a lot of silver buckshot. The handy study said, under the conditions that obtain now, it will be difficult to avoid collapse, but it can be avoided if we act to reduce the depletion of nature and reduce inequality. So how do we do that? A number of us believe that we start with a better story. Thomas Berry said, we're in trouble now because we don't have a good story. The old story, this narrative of neoliberalism, told us who we were, how we fit in. It gave us purpose. It guided all of our activities. He said, it's failing now. We're losing every major ecosystem on Earth, and it's driving to this inequality. He said, we need a new story. Humans have always learned by story. And if you go back and think about the story that we've been living under, we're a weird species. We create these narratives, and then we believe they're immutable. As Mandela said, we created it so we can change it. Here's the story I'm working on. We're in the muck, and that's not far wrong. Sustainability. Sustainability is just getting our nose above water. It is the ability to go on. The great designer Bill Reed talks about a, a ladder, if you will, from degenerative, which is where we are now, through if you will, all the alphabet soup of CSR, corporate social responsibility, SRI, socially responsible investing, and all of the UN acronyms, UNFCCC, a bunch of us are going off to Paris for yet another of these COPs and MOPs and conference of party and meeting of parties, to sustainability, then to restoration, but ultimately to regeneration. They point out that nature is sustainable, not because it's set out to be, but because it's regenerative. So I've been working with a team of folk. <clears throat> David Johnston, who's in the back of the room, Ann and Sandy Butterfield, the Prime Minister of Bhutan, who a couple years ago called a number of us to Bhutan and said to me, Hunter, I want you to reinvent the global economy. It's like, me? 
But I pulled together some of the brightest minds I can find. Ashok Kosla, who runs Development Alternatives in India, Dr. Robert Costanza, Dr. Jacqueline McGlade, Dr. Ida Kubashevsky. Together we've created a little group called ASAP, Alliance for Sustainability and Prosperity. John Fullerton, John was 18 years at J.P. Morgan. He walked away in 2001, left as managing director. He just walked away. He said, this isn't right. And on a bright September day, he went down to Wall Street to see some of his buddies and along about Canal Street, somebody said they just flew a plane into one of the towers. And he emerged to see the other one come down and started walking north. Took him all day to get home. Built a room in his barn and started reading, read Limits to Growth, read E.F. Schumacher, read Herman Daly, read Natural Capitalism. About three years ago, he created a little group called Capital Institute to try to transform finance. He said, I know finance, and it, it is what is driving all of the impact that we're seeing. He said, impact investing, all investment has impact. So he and I wrote a little piece in Fast Company that you can get if you want the shorthand version of it. One of the things that he said is, here's, how, here's the situation today. We, the planet people, are in service to the economy. So after 9-11, our president said, go shopping. <coughs> Tom Friedman said, isn't there something more you could ask of the American people? <coughs> but it's true. We exist to serve the economy, which exists to serve finance. We are very efficient at flowing money to the top. What's wrong with this picture? It's wrong way around. Finance is a tool to bring liquidity to a real economy which is in service to life. John has laid out eight principles of what he calls regenerative capitalism. And you can go to the Capital Institute website and download this document. Right relationship. This owes back to Bob Costanza, another of the fathers of ecological economics, who says the economy exists within society which exists within the biosphere. And we need to understand this relationship. Holistic wealth. Wealth is more than money. It's community. It's knowing who you can go to for help. It's well-being. A regenerative system is inherently entrepreneurial. It's innovative. It adapts. And I had the honor uh, a couple days ago to lecture downstairs to Watson University, Eric Lustrum's great program here in town. I mentor for the Unreasonable Institute. With a name like that, I'd have to be a part of it. <laughs> and we bring young entrepreneurs from around the world and help them gain the skills to go out and change the world. It's in our human nature to begin again. Empowered participation. Democracy is a contact sport. And in a, in a system of regenerative capitalism, you have a say in the economy that affects you. This is the work of Francis Moore LaPay and, and of her daughter, Anna LaPay, who lives here in Boulder. Edge effect abundance. This is Janine Benyus's concept of 
In nature, the most abundant places are where two ecosystems abut, where a meadow meets the forest or a river meets the ocean. Why? Because there's diversity. Michael Porter, who uh, has written a lot on, uh, on business and on economic development and competitiveness, was doing a study one day and he found that the, the single best predictor of success in economic development, wh where you could go to have economic development, was prevalence of homosexuals. He said, that's got to be a surrogate correlate. So he thought about it for a bit and he said, gays go where they are tolerated. Where there is tolerance of diversity is where you get this abundance. Robust circulation. We, we're all here because blood is circulating in our bodies. Materials need to circulate within the economy, not just be thrown away. We're brilliant at digging stuff up, using it briefly, and then throwing it away. It needs to start going round and round. It seeks balance. Our economy is very efficient at flowing money to the top, and it's very brittle. There's a balance between resilience and efficiency. And we're way to the side of efficiency. And perhaps most important, a regenerative economy honors place. Yes, we can have global trade. Had this uh, debate last night down at the Alliance for Sustainable Colorado with Selene de Yaris, who runs Boulder's Best Organics and at the epicenter here in Boulder. She was saying, we ought to have global trade. That's how you have fair trade. And we can't just close ourselves off. And she's right. You don't want to be autarkically local. But you do want to provide for yourself what you have to have. You want to know where your energy, your water, your food, your housing, your health care, your sanitation, the services that you need are coming from locally. And have a say in it and participate in it. Then you can buy Scotch whiskey. Wendell Berry said, what I stand for is what I stand on. We all need to become a lot more conscious of place. It's one of the reasons I love the Boulder Valley. So can we do this? Can we take these basic principles and build an economy? The sci-fi writer William Gibson said, the future's already here, it's just not widely distributed. <laughs> we have all the technologies that we need to solve all of the problems facing us. I like to start with efficiency. And one of my favorite companies, Diageo, they make my favorite whiskey, Talisker, said one day, climate change, this is a problem. Um, what if we became 100% carbon neutral as a company? They ran the numbers out, ooh, expensive. She said, uh, all right, 50%. They ran the numbers like, yep, there's a business case. We can do this, we'll make money, so they did. They said, by 2050, we want to be 50% carbon neutral. They did it in about three or four years. And then one of their distillery managers up in Canada said, if I can have some of the savings from all your efficiency improvements down in the States, I can get us 80% of the way there 
using a landfill methane to energy project. And smart bean counters in New York said, go. So they're now 80% carbon neutral, which is about what the scientists tell us we have to be by 2050. They just did it 30-some years early. Scotland. Scotland reckons to be 100% renewably powered by 2020. Wind, wave, forest, and then taking the waste from their distilleries and making it into energy. Dr. Mark Jacobson, Stanford professor, said there are no technological or economic barriers to converting the entire world to clean, renewable energy. It's just a question of do we want to. He had the cover of Scientific America saying, we can do this in uh, 2030. In the last year, year and a bit, year and a half, there has been an extraordinary sea change. It started with Citigroup issuing a report called Energy Darwinism, in which they said this is the era of renewables. Because of the alarming fall in the price of solar, alarming to who? They said, if you build a new coal or nuclear plant, anything central station, within the first quarter of its life, it is going to be rendered uncompetitive by these advancing renewable technologies. They said, yes, you can get renewables now on offer at five cents a kilowatt hour. Actually, it's 3.7 cents now in Nevada, utility scale solar. But they said, we discount that because that's subsidized. Uh, hint to city, all energy is subsidized, and the incumbent technologies, the coal, oil, nuclear, gas, get at least 12 times the subsidies that go to all forms of renewables. We spend more subsidizing fossil energy as a globe than we spend on health care. But never mind. What Citi said that was interesting was the 10-year unsubsidized forward price of gas, which they said is the cheapest, 11 cents a kilowatt hour. 10-year unsubsidized forward price of solar, 10 cents a kilowatt hour. They said it's over. This is the era of renewables. The National Bank of Abu Dhabi. These are not the kind of folk that you are going to think of as your beady-eyed hippies. Two to four cents per kilowatt hour by 2050. Four to six cents by 2020. That's the running cost of a natural gas plant. So all this fracking that's going on, it may not have the long life that our current governor thinks it ought to. This change can happen very fast. California went from 1.9% of its electricity from solar in 2013 to 5% in 2014. Japan after Fukushima. A gigawatt is roughly a nuclear-sized chunk of electricity. China. You know, we all say, oh, we're not going to do anything until China does. Yeah, well, China is. And these numbers change every time I go back and look at them to put together a new show. China is continuing to make new commitments. The latest one this week is 150 gigawatts of renewables by 2020. 
China now reckons to be 80% renewably powered by 2050. Renewables are winning. It's a China figure. What's interesting now with the UN climate meeting coming up, we've failed year on year on year. I wear on my hat a pin from Kyoto. I was there for COP3 when we negotiated a global treaty to put a price on carbon, to create a market to trade carbon, and we thought we'd done it, we'd won, till the US Senate said no. And ever since, the world has been trying to come up with a new mechanism. So recently, they hit on this notion of INDCs, intended nationally determined contributions. This is not a binding commitment. It, it's a contribution. And now countries are starting to trump each other. India came out and said 40% renewables by 2030. Brazil then said 43%. It's like, wow, this is cool. We're having a race to the top. Here's where it gets fun. Stanford professor named Tony Seba has a book out called Clean Disruption. He says the world will be 100% solar by 2030. Wow. He says because of four reasons. The fall in the price of solar, the fall in the price of energy storage, electric vehicles, and yes, that is my leaf sitting out there, and self-driving vehicles. This is the triumph of the sun. He said, you're going to hit global grid parity. That's where the solar on your roof is as cheap as the electricity coming out of the wall socket by 2017 for 80% of the world. All US states grid parity by 2016. How the world is changing. Little Tesla valued at more than half the market cap of General Motors despite selling 300 times fewer cars. How is that possible? What is Tesla's business model? It's not a car company. Batteries, bingo. It's a battery company. And when you have affordable storage and a whole lot of solar, wind, other renewables, you have fixed firm power. At, that's the point at which solar wins. EVs are pretty cool. 2,000 plus moving parts in an internal combustion engine, 18 in an EV. When I bought mine, I bought it because I was invited down to Denver to debate the frackers. They had a really good guy up against me. And he had the last word. He said, look, you want our product, we're going to drill it, you're going to buy it. <laughs> I went home in a bad mood. And the next morning, my husband said, hey, you want to go test drive a leaf? I said, yeah, I do. Peppy little thing. Man, I'm used to the idea of an electric golf cart. You step out. So far, I have smoked a Porsche, a Mercedes, a BMW, and a Mustang because EVs have torque. They go real fast up to the point at which you're at the speed limit. And beyond that, if the, if the guys want to go roaring past me, they can see the Boulder Sheriff. 
So as we're buying this thing, the guy says, oh, you don't need that piece of paper. I said, what's that? He said, it's the emissions report. I said, what's the maintenance? He said, rotate the tires. I said, you're kidding. It's a better car. Now, yes, it is range limited. Next year it won't be, and the Tesla isn't already. So here's the solar system at my ranch, five kilowatt system, and my leaf. If the utility is nice to me, I do what I do now. I'm grid interconnected, and on a hot summer afternoon when I'm not home, my system is chunking out electrons that goes to, in my case, Poudre Valley, in your case, for a little while yet, Excel. And they can sell it to idiots who want air conditioning. If they are not nice to me, I buy one of these things, or a Tesla wall, although the Tesla wall is, what, two years back ordered. They haven't even produced them yet. This is the Bosch or LG five kilowatt storage system. And I cut the tie. I leave the grid. Which is why Steve Chu said the utilities are in danger of being FedExed, just like the post office got FedExed. The utilities are going to have to change their business model. The, all the transmission that we have is underused. About, only about 40% of the central station capacity is in use. And these things are not terribly efficient, which is why we're now starting to hear talk about the death spiral of the electric utilities. And in Europe, they're losing money at a great rate. 600 billion in value over the past five years. Eon, RWE, the two big ones. First nine months of 2014 over 2013, RWE's profits down 60%, Eon down 91%. Why? Because they took a write-off. They said, right, we're out of coal and nuclear. We're just gonna sell those assets and become a distributed utility moving renewable generation around where people want it. This is not a red or a blue issue, with all due respect to the boys down the road and one girl. My friend Jim Woolsey <laughs> used to run the CIA. You've got to worry about yourself when you have a friend who runs the CIA. He used to drive a, like well, probably still does, drive a plug-in hybrid car with a bumper sticker on the back said, Osama bin Laden hates my car. He sees this as a national security issue. Jim is most assuredly not a liberal. He runs the car off the solar panels on his roof and is an investor into renewable energy. This isn't a red or a blue issue. This is an economic issue. 2014, the Carbon Disclosure Project. CDP was, it was a group of kids in the UK, well, Paul Dickinson had a little gray hair, who about a decade or so ago, just because, sent out a survey to the biggest companies on earth saying, what's your carbon footprint? As you might imagine, the companies ignored them for a year or two as Tom Karnak, who ran North American CDP and is currently the special assistant to Christina Figueres at UNFCCC. I'll see Tom in Paris in, uh, in about a month. 
said, if you are backed by institutional investors with now $97 trillion in assets, he said, the companies can refuse to answer you for a year or two, but not forever. CDP now gets reports from essentially every major company on earth. A lot of cities, a lot of national governments. And what they have found in tracking these reports is that the companies that are leading in measuring and managing their carbon footprint are in building sustainability into the core of their business have 18% higher return on investment than the companies that are lagging, 67% higher than the companies that refuse to report. Who died and made CDP God? Walmart. Question number one on the Walmart scorecard, do you measure your carbon footprint? Question number two, do you report to CDP? We're changing the world through wild ass ideas, through kids that won't take no for an answer, working with the big companies, working with the governments. We can do it. If we get our heads straight, we think we're here because of this big brain sitting up on top of our shoulders. No, we're not. We're here because of six inches of soil and the fact that it rains. We need to reinvent agriculture while we're reinventing energy. The way we're doing it now is wholly unsustainable. And we think, we are told by folk like Monsanto, by the big ag folk, that this is the answer. Again, no, it's not. UNCTAD report. The only way to feed the world is smallholder organic agriculture. And when you do that, when you start practicing regenerative agriculture, you start rebuilding the health of the soil. When the pioneers first came out this way, they, they found 10 feet of thick black soil. It's now inches worth. We have decarbonized the soil and in so doing contributed to climate change. Well, let's reverse it. If we increased soil carbon 2%, we would soak up all the human-emitted carbon ever in history. How do you do that? A man named Alan Savory. The Savory Institute is headquartered here in Boulder. This is uh, from a TED talk he gave that I highly recommend, in which he is showing how using grazing animals in the way in which nature and grazing animals co-evolved with the grasslands the grasslands are the world's second largest carbon sink after the oceans. Dense packed by predators. They, if, you're, if you've got a wolf prowling around your edges, the safest place to be is in the middle of the herd. So everybody keeps trying to get into the middle. They eat everything, they chop it up, they fertilize it, and then they move on. They don't come back until there's grass there again. Very different than the way we ranch. And it works, and it's more profitable. These are, the, the top two and the bottom one are same day, looking left, looking right, holistically managed, conventionally managed. The uh, third one down is a year later, conventional management to holistic management. And it's what people want, it's healthier. 
When you feed corn to cattle, you have all the environmental harm and cost to the farmer of growing all the corn. It's very water intensive, energy intensive. And it's not healthy for the cow. Turns the omega-3 oil into omega-6, destroys the conjugated linoleic acids. So people are going to grass beef in droves because of the health. So it's more profitable to the farmers and the ranchers. Again, there is a business case for most of this. It also gives us what we want more of, which is jobs. My friend Occam Steiner runs UN Environment, reckons that the greener economy will be half the global workforce by 2030. And as I said, it's happening, whether it be reports in Harvard Business Review or sustainability certifications or my friend Yvonne Chouinard getting the cover of Fortune or the evil empire going green. Trust me, when Walmart goes green, there's a business case. They are not doing this out of the goodness of their hearts. But actually, some corporate leaders are. I work with Paul Pullman, the CEO of Unilever. Shortly after he became the CEO, he said, I'm not going to report quarterly to Wall Street. He said, managing on a 90-day rotation is crazy. You make decisions to satisfy the Wall Street analysts. This doesn't help the company. It certainly doesn't help our customers. He said, we are going to do the right thing for the right reasons, and that's what will deliver value to owners. DNVGL, this is a company I advise in Norway, came out with this report, A Safe and Sustainable Future. They are now badging themselves as a regenerative company. And it's what young people want. Young people want to work for such companies. They want to do business with such companies. And they want to be inspired by things like Janine, asking how does nature do business? Nature makes a wide array of products and services very differently than we do. Nature runs on sunlight, not fossil energy. There's nothing persistently toxic. You know, all of us who live around here know about rattlesnakes, but it doesn't hang around for hundreds of thousands of years like nuclear waste. Nature makes everything near to something that's alive. Ambient temperature manufacturing, water-based chemistry, closed loops, and shopping locally. These closed loops are important. My friend Dr. Marcus Gilles, working at the time with McKinsey and with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, has shown that if we implemented what he calls a circle, actually he didn't call it, a man named Walter Stahel framed this phrase of a circular economy, cradle to cradle. No, Bill McDonough did not invent that phrase. But if we implement it, it's a trillion dollars annually added to the economy of stopping the waste, of recycling, remanufacturing, remaking. It gives us more jobs, it gives us more innovation, and it takes less money. We just need to get a little more clever. In nature, carbon is not the world's greatest poison. It's the building block of all of life. So entrepreneurs are figuring out how to use carbon as the feedstock for plastics. This company, New Light, they just signed a 20-year supply contract, 19 billion pounds of this plastic made from the flue gas 
of natural gas plants, the CO2 in the exhaust that would otherwise go out into the atmosphere. Dr. Rachel Armstrong had a nice TED talk on can we build buildings that are living things that by breathing are taking up the pollution of cities. We haven't even begun to entrepreneur our way out of the challenges facing us. So who's responsible? <laughs> You'd have thanked somebody to picked up the damn possum. Alexia Parks, who's a City Club member, had a nice blog reporting on work of one of my old staffers, Rick Heedy, that 90 companies are responsible for two-thirds of the carbon dioxide methane emissions. 90 companies. The good news is that is a number you can work with. You know who these companies are. You can get the address of the CEO. You can begin to put pressure on them. Christina Figueres, who runs the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, where do we put our money? Where capital goes is going to make the difference in what kind of a future we have. So I'm working with a group of investors, a little company based here in Boulder called Principium to build a set of portfolios. You can have your basic SRI Lite, that's the traditional economy portfolio, or the responsible economy, or where I have my money, which is called clean economy. This is a truly carbon-free, fossil fuel-free portfolio. And there are now a whole number of companies. I spoke at the Bioneers event on Saturday with Denali Capital, with uh, Garvin Jarbush of uh, Green Alpha. Uh, Natasha Lamb in Boston has one of these companies. I don't care where you put your money, but put it somewhere where your money is building the future that you want. Do you know what your money's doing right now? If not, we can help you. And Boulder, come on. We have an opportunity here to transform our business model of where we get our energy. Municipal utilities work. They have lower prices and better reliability. Excel outspent us 10 to 1 and still lost. And now there's another election. Who's responsible? You are. How are you going to vote in this election? We're going to change the story. We're going to give people something to hold on to, to build an economy in service to life using the ancient wisdom, using the wisdom from nature, using the entrepreneurs to bring us home again. As Bucky said, we're called to be the architects of the future, not its victims. Thank you very much.
And maybe uh, this is a good place to start a conversation. Did I say anything controversial? <laughs> now, is somebody going to run a microphone, or do people just jump up? Jump up and say it. So if inequality is such an inherent evil, then why, is, uh, why are the folks down the road believing that small government can solve big problems that are an issue? Or I mean, how does that? The narrative. David Corton. Uh, before the election where I believe the first Bush got elected the first time said Americans want three things and I think he's right about people the world around. They want prosperity, security, and meaning. The, he said neocons, neoliberal ideology, has teed up plausible stories about how it is that you personally are going to get prosperity security, and meaning. Prosperity, don't give money to the poor. They're poor, they don't spend it well. That's plausible, yeah? We all, we all know somebody in our lives that blows through money. What do the progressives say? Increase taxes and give more money to the poor. Non-responsive to this plausible story. How is it that we are going to create prosperity in communities. And that's why I talk about job creation and the entrepreneurial opportunities and the role that your investment can play. SRI funds, by the way, outperform the general market on a, on a pretty steady average. On security, it's the big man on the white horse. And so we elect movie actors to be politicians. What do the progressives say? Make love, not war. Again, non-responsive. This is a manifestly dangerous world. How is it we're going to get security? So I talk about folk like Jim Woolsey, who sees this as a national security issue. Meaning, my president speaks to God on Friday, and the country goes, thank God somebody does. What do the progressives say? Separate church and state. They are silent on how do we get meaning. Corton said, until the progressives have a story that addresses prosperity, security, and meaning were going nowhere. Obama was elected on an inspirational platform of change. Somewhere on the road to the White House, he uh, lost track a bit. That said, I think when we look back 10 years from now, we will look a lot more kindly on Mr. Obama. He came into office at a time when the economy had gone over a cliff. Now, myself, I think I would have preferred that he do what Iceland just did, which is jail the banksters, and let the big banks go down. On the other hand, we were looking at the next Great Depression. He brought in Summers and Geithner, and they kept the depression from happening. So, I don't know, maybe he was right. Where do we go from here? Do we put money back into Wall Street? The 10 biggest banks are bigger now than they were before the 08 recession? Or do we put money into Main Street, into entrepreneurs? With Principium, I'm working to try to shift money from harm to healing. We're working on a, on a little notion called Impact 2X. And if you invest with an impact firm, you get 1X. High net worth individuals 
are able, if they have a stock portfolio, to borrow against that portfolio up to something like half the value of the portfolio at something like 1%. That's how the rich get richer. So a friend of ours, Jim Davidson, said, uh, who has his, his money at uh, Principium, said, why don't we do a deal where we, we pull together high net worth individuals to invest in impact, borrow against that portfolio, and then place the money with CDFIs, community development finance institutions, to loan out to entrepreneurs in minority communities, in, in indigenous communities, in the pockets of poverty where entrepreneurs can't get capital. And this will begin to move large sums of money into what have otherwise been underserved populations addressing this issue of inequality. We've got to just get a lot more creative at how do we move the money with a business case. Now, why aren't we doing this? Because if you borrow up to half your portfolio and the market collapses, you're going to have a margin call against you, at which point you're going to have to come up with that money, and you better be a really high net worth individual. So we're, we're working with some big foundations, the sorts of folk who pour money into poor communities directly, to say, if you will set up a program to backstop these high net worth individuals so they won't get killed in a margin call, we think we can move large sums of money into poor communities. So the, the CDFIs already know who the worthy entrepreneurs are. They just can't get the capital flow. Make sense? All the way in the back. Then two, three. It's not an either-or crops or grazing. Much of the world's surface is covered by grassland on which you can't profitably grow crops. So start with that land, rather than taking land out of crop production. If you're growing crops, remember the UNCTAD report, do it with smallholder organic agriculture, but then graze the rest of it using this approach of holistic management. I'm not going to defend anybody's bad practices, and feedlot beef is a bad practice. But I have used the savory method on 1,000 acres of ground up in the Roaring Fork Valley. John Denver had it for a while. They took the cattle off the land when they bought it, and over 20 years, the land degraded. Noxious weeds came in, the land eroded. We brought the cattle back, and within about a two-year period, the wetlands came back. Endangered species came back. Yeah, you've got to do it right, and that's why the Savory Institute is training people the world around. They have what are called Savory Hubs, where people work together to understand the precise ecosystem of their piece of ground. Everyone is different. And they now have the science coming in to show that it puts carbon back into the ground, it enhances the profitability of the ranchers. If you want a good piece on this, there is a lovely video called Meet the Farmer on Joel Salatin of Polyface Farms. If you've read Michael Pollan's book, The Omnivore's Dilemma, he described Joel's uh, 
work. And Joel shows you what he's doing on his piece of ground in Virginia, which was a clapped out old Appalachian farm, and he's brought it back to productivity and profitability. So yeah, it works. Two, three. That's a good question. How does Principium address monopolies? In the traditional economy fund, we don't. We invest in mutual funds that are well-managed with a little bit of an SRI screen. In the, in the transition fund, we look a lot more closely at the behavior of the companies. We have our own set of responsible corporate behavior metrics, which were built by a woman named Donna Morton, who's a First Nations woman out of Canada, done a lot of work on human rights issues, and me on the environmental side. And then a couple of really bright quants who do deep dives into the financial performance of these companies. In the Clean Economy Fund, we look really hard at do I want to own that company? So we didn't hold Volkswagen. I just had a bad feeling about it. And we're in the process of building what we're going to call the edge portfolio, which is the companies I really want to be invested in, regardless of how they perform financially. And we were asked to do this by a couple high net worth individuals who said, Hunter, what would you invest in? I said, you don't want to know. I'm not a terribly good investor. And they said, we do want to know because we believe these are the companies that will perform over the next decade. And I mean, I can tell you horror stories of investments I've made into various solar companies be and then something changed in the global marketplace, like oil prices drop, so everybody thinks, oh, everybody's going to run back to oil, nobody's going to buy solar. So the solar stocks are down. They said, we don't care. We want to be in this for the long term. What are the companies you want to buy? So we're going to build the edge portfolio, and we'll see. I'm going to bet that over the decade, we'll outperform. But in that company, we won't have monopolies, because I don't want to own them. You know, when, uh, when Toyota was formed, they created the Toyota production system, half of which is on lean manufacturing, half of which is on how do you treat your people on the human side of it. And they prospered hugely. It enabled them to innovate and build the Prius. And then they set this goal, we're going to be the world's biggest car company. And they went after it in spades. So they started building these big behemoth trucks to compete in the American market. And they forgot about quality. And it bit them. And VW took over as the number one car company. It's not anymore. Toyota's back. But we don't hold Toyota either in our, in our clean portfolio. We do hold Tesla, but it's not a monopoly yet. What about the issue of growth in retooling the global economy? Uh, if, you know, God help us if we ever flatline and we're not growing. Um, it seems unsustainable. What's really driving that growth ideology? Growth of what? That's, I think, the missing question. Yeah, G what's GDP? GDP is you know, gross domestic product, gross national product, same difference. 
It is a metric of the throughput of money and stuff in the economy. It really is a measure of velocity. It doesn't measure whether you're any better off. So if a divorcing cancer patient gets in a car wreck, she adds to the GDP. Is she any better off? No. I mean, she's paying lawyers and doctors and now auto mechanics, all of which goes to the GDP. Is she any better off? If you take a year off and care for your aged father, you have taken yourself out of the GDP. Are you and your father better off? You bet. But that's not measured. So clearly one issue in this is how do we measure what it is that we want more of. Simon Kuznets, who invented the concept of GDP, said it's a terrible measure of well-being. So why do we use it? Because it happens to track fairly well to job creation, or at least it has in the past. I think we know how to create jobs, unleash entrepreneurs, build the stuff that we want more of. Now, if I'm working with an entrepreneur, do I want his company to grow? You bet. I want it to go to scale. When you have a baby, do you want them to grow? Absolutely. You want her to be full, healthy human being. Do you want her then to keep growing? No. So there is an issue of timing, how much growth, growth of what, growth for whom, where is the benefit going? Do we want to grow learning? Yeah. Innovation, music, education, there are a lot of things we want more of. Health, prosperity, well-being, yeah, we want more of all of that. But the way in which we measure doesn't count for any of that. So that's a conversation that as a country we need to have, as a community we need to have. How many more people do we want here in Boulder? We had some very far-sighted policy people years ago who put the growth boundary, bought up what was then trash land, what is now our crown jewel. They were very savvy about growth issues a long time ago and we're all benefiting. Could you speak to population growth? It seems to be the big elephant in the room that nobody talks about. Sure. How many people can be on Earth? Four billion? Uh, Paul Ehrlich says, uh, what is it, 1.2 and to truly be within the carrying capacity. We did a scoping calculation once of could we meet the energy needs of 9 billion? Yes. It depends on how these people live. Uh, John Holdren, who's currently the Obama's science advisor and Paul Ehrlich, evolved a formula called IPAT, impact equals population times affluence times technology. So how many people do you have? How much stuff are they taking? And how do you produce that stuff? You can address any of those terms. But since you asked about population, Dr. Malcolm Potts, University of California, Berkeley School of Public Health, says you do five things. You feed people, you end hunger, you reform land tenure, this is the work of Hernando de Soto, the uh, mystery of capital. 
so that people now have a deed to the land they are squatting on. They now can become capitalists. They can take a mortgage out on it. They can, they can capitalize themselves. You educate people, particularly women. You provide information about and access to contraception. In every country where these five, and in many cases only three out of that, are done, population goes to zero population growth and stays there. It doesn't matter if it's a Catholic country, doesn't matter where it is, what the political system is, women start having the number of children that is sustainable. We're not feeding people. Remember Kate Raworth's donut? We're not providing those minimum services. So we have a population problem. But we know how to solve it. It really is a political problem. One, two. So in cases where there is a compelling business case for sustainability, you can leave the rules of capitalism in place and make progress. But is that enough? Are there changes to the you know, sort of fundamental underlying assumptions? You, you, you know, get a nice graphic that showed you know, the planet in service of the economy in service of finance. You know? So irrespective of whether the, you know, we're using more sustainable methods, if that's still the basic formula, that's still the equation that we will get there. You guys ask easy questions. <laughs> Capitalism is a useful tool. It's a, it's a lousy religion. And we've made it into a religion. And we're dogmatic about it. I'm a fan of market mechanisms and the use thereof within a, an informed and active populace so that you are framing the policies to guide the use of those market mechanisms to achieve democratically decided upon goals. Getting to that state is going to take some changes in our mental model and in the way in which we conduct government. I think it is very achievable if we just start getting active. I think we have ceded our democratic duty by saying, well, there's dark money in politics. My vote won't make a difference. Perhaps not, but your voice will. So what's it going to take to get to John Fullerton's eight principles? When John and I first met, in fact, it was here in Boulder, uh, when, when the King of Bhutan asked me to <laughs> reinvent the global economy, I started going around to all my bright friends. Went to a man named Rick Stuckey. Rick's known on Wall Street as Fix-It Rick. He's the guy Citigroup called in to deal with their toxic assets. He teaches finance at Bard. And I said, Rick, help. He said, yeah, I'll help. But you don't want to talk to me. You want to talk to a man named John Fullerton. And I'd heard Fullerton was coming out to talk at Woody Tash's slow money meeting. So I was going to go down. I know Woody. I figured I could smuggle my way in enough to meet this guy. And then my husband said, want to go ride the high country? <laughs> yes. And I thought, damn, how am I going to meet this guy? Was giving a talk at uh, Alan Savory's conference a couple weeks later. Beautiful day like today. I was standing outside. I didn't want to go inside. And this guy walks up to me says, hi, my name's John Fullerton. Rick Stuckey said we should talk. So we went down the street to, uh, gave our, each gave our speeches, went down the street to Oak, sat down, and uh, 
and talked. And the first thing I said on hearing his approach was, what's your strategy of change? He said, well, that's the weak link. And it remains our weak link. What exactly is it going to take in policy measures, in changes in mindset, in changes in the narrative, in the economics? What's it going to take item by item, energy policy, water policy, agriculture policy, population policy? How are we going to do this? So a group of us, uh, Costanza and this ASAP group and natural capitalism are now seeking the funding. I was today writing a proposal to, uh, to go to a big European foundation to try to get funding to pull together these brightest thinkers that I know and lay out exactly that. What is our strategy of change? So watch this space. I hope to be able to give you an answer. Bud. Totally no, but uh, it's very hard to get elected in Canada by saying, nope, we're going to cut Alberta off at the knees. So I exaggerated by saying totally, but he's, he, he justifies his own argument about more jobs, right? So what would you suggest our strategy can be to awaken Mr. Trudeau to the realities of what further extraction of the Palestinians means to the planet? And then a side question is, I'd love to hear your opinion of Naomi uh, Klein's no, you don't. <laughs> this changes everything. It sucks. Uh, I, I really disagree with Naomi on just about every particular. Um, there are a lot of facts in the book that aren't true. You're, you're entitled to your opinions. You're not entitled to facts that aren't. So I sat with Naomi in the church, All Souls Church, the night before the Great Climate March in New York a year ago and listen to her calling for blood in the streets, for armed revolutions. Are you kidding me? Revolutions eat their own. Women and children go first, and they eat the intellectuals, and they don't change what needs to be changed. It isn't going to work. Same problem with Richard Brand, the uh, British comedian who says, I haven't a flicker of a doubt it'll be blood in the streets, be revolution. Sarah Palin shoots straighter than most of us. <laughs> that is not the route we want to go. <laughs> On top of which, until uh, Billy McKibben uh, got so famous um, doing the hard work, Klein was going around in Canada saying climate change doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is people. So she's a little late to this game. Now, on uh, what to do with Mr. Trudeau, uh, my friend Donna Morton, who is Canadian, uh, has a scheme, and uh, ask me in about a month, I'll tell you if it worked, to uh, sit us down with Trudeau when we're all in Paris. And what I'm going to tell him if I get that opportunity is, 
Run the numbers. How many jobs per dollar invested are you getting out of tar sands versus the jobs you would get if you go back to what Canada had been doing, a feed-in tariff on renewables in Ontario, carbon tax in British Columbia, sustainable agriculture in Alberta. There's a great example. TK Ranch up in Alberta has been practicing savory-style agriculture for a long time and profiting even when the border was closed. So run the numbers, do the math, as Billy says. And you'll find that the tar sands is just a bad investment. It, to do tar sands, you know, tar, tar sands is this sand that has bitumen in it. It's not even really oil. And to get it out, you have to cook it. Where do you get the energy to cook it? So they're going to build nuclear plants in northern Alberta. Serious. To... Uh, produce the electricity to cook the tar sands. Nuclear is the most expensive option. 20 to 26 cents a kilowatt hour for new nukes. Well, it, just take a look at any of the photographs, the flyover photographs of the tar sands that exist now or the commentary by the native people up there who now have uh, cancer clusters or the biologists who are showing the the decimation of the fish populations. I mean, I can see why uh, David Suzuki would say no to anybody who'd say, yeah, tar sands are okay. Thank you. How, mu how much time do we have? To one, more one more question? Well, it's just wrong to start with, and the Army actually knows it, and the Navy knows it even better. Ray Mabus, Secretary of the Navy, is talking about building the Great Green Fleet. They are working with companies like Solozyme, a little entrepreneurial effort, taking, I kid you not, pond scum, algae, and turning it into biofuel. And the Navy is now flying the F-18 Green Hornet on half algae biofuel. They're running frigates up and down the West Coast on this stuff. And Mabus says, look, the Navy used to run on sail. Then we switched to coal. We had coaling stations around the world. Then we switched to oil. He said, renewable energy is homegrown. It's more secure. It's cheaper. It's better for national security. Conversely, one of the entities saying that climate change is one of the greatest threats to American national security is the Pentagon. So if we want security, what is security? What makes you feel secure? The um, four times square Condé Nast building in New York City costs the same to build, uses half the energy, has photovoltaics in the spandrels between the windows, had a fuel cell in the basement. In the 03 blackout, it was the only place around with light. People came from blocks around to camp out underneath it. That's real homeland security. Distributed solar, and this is why uh, Woolsey likes distributed renewables. 
So this is what will give our communities resilience. In the 13 floods, we were out of power for four days. Well, no, we weren't. We had our solar system. So we said to all the neighbors, you know, if you need anything, come on over here. That's, I think, what gives us real security. So I'm going to end with a picture of my friend Dana Meadows. You remember that old Limits to Growth book? Dana said, the world faces not a preordained future, but a choice, a choice between mental models. One says this is a finite world with no limits. Choosing that model will take us beyond the limits and collapse within the next half century. Another model says the limits are real and close and there is not enough time, or that people can't be moderate or responsible or compassionate. That model is self-fulfilling. If we choose to believe it, we will get to be right. A third model says the limits are real and close and there is exactly enough time with no time to waste. Enough energy, enough material, money, environmental resilience, and enough human virtue to bring about a revolution to a better world. That model might be wrong. All the evidence we've seen, however, from the world data to the global computer models suggests that it might be right. There's no way of knowing for sure other than to do it. So if I can leave you with one challenge, do it, whatever it is. My friend the folk singer said, find what you care about and live a life that shows it. Thank you. You've been listening to Hunter Lovins, head of Natural Capitalism Solutions. I'm Shelley Schlender. You can find out more talks like these and interviews at howonearthradio.org.